If you don't mind, let's be turning to the very end of Genesis chapter 4. We covered all of Genesis chapter 4 last week. We're going to come back now to the very end of chapter 4 to tie in to what we'll be discussing, which is the bulk of chapter 5 today. But there's a very important transition that happens at the end of chapter 4 that I want to spend a little bit of time on today. I considered taking some time off of our verse-by-verse teaching through Genesis. That's what we're doing right now as a church family. But I feel like this passage that is in front of us today, it's the next passage in the sequence of our teaching, I think it really actually fits well with the things that I would like to emphasize and reflect upon today as a church. As we celebrate now our eighth anniversary as a church, I could wax eloquent for a couple of hours and tell you stories of uh, failure. I could tell you stories of heartache. I could tell you stories of sadness. Conversely, I could tell you stories of successes. I could tell you stories of joy. I could tell you stories of, of times where our hearts overflowed with blessing. But I feel like this passage sort of encapsulates some of those thoughts. Last week, as we took time to study Genesis chapter 4 together here in our teaching time, we found it to be a pretty dark chapter. It's one of those chapters you get down in and it, you, you wade through the middle of it and it's dark and it's tough. It's, it's kind of like um, walking through the forest in the middle of the night. And I remember one time I was out backpacking and um, a bear came into my camp right around, twi- uh, right around dusk. And so it wasn't safe to stay there. I was all by myself out in Tennessee. So I had to pack everything up and hike like seven miles to the next shelter. And I'm walking through a dark forest not knowing if a bear is chasing me with my headlamp. And, and it, was, it was tough and, and it's a little bit scary, and you hear all kinds of noises, and you don't know if some crazy hillbilly who's going to come out of the woods because you ran near his moonshine still and kill you with his shotgun. It's, it's a little bit disturbing. Um, so, so I feel like sometimes walking through a passage like we just walked through last week, it's dark, it's, a, it's, a, it's treacherous. You look at all the details, and you think, man, this, this is just horrible. And we're not surprised because it follows on the heels of chapter 3 where God cursed the world. Not because he's capricious, not because he's mean-spirited, because he told them, if you break my law, cursing will come. But there's beauty in chapter 3 because God brings hope. He injects hope into the darkness. He promises that a redeemer will come who will crush the tempter. Then he robes his first fallen couple in righteousness. He chases after the prodigals and shows himself to be a merciful, kind father. So you think, okay, great, beautiful, gracious, perfect creation, bent now, twisted into this new humanity which is fallen, but, but there's hope. They're given the, the rays, the light of hope. Maybe things will be okay. And then you get to chapter 4, their first offspring, the first chance they have for maybe a redeeming seed to come to crush the head of the tempter to bring hope back into all the brokenness. And their eldest son kills the younger son. And the root of his murder, the root of his hatred that led to the murder was just self-righteousness. Immediately, he began as the first offspring of the first couple to seek to establish his own righteousness. That's why he was so enraged at his brother. His brother had a humble heart and trusted God. 
Abel intuitively saw that the only path to life was just to trust the Creator. Cain could not bear that, and therefore he emulated the sins of his parents. Whereas his parents had disobeyed God a little bit ignorantly, and I want to be careful with that because God clearly had warned them, they had never tasted sin before. But when Cain killed his brother, not only had he seen his parents sin, he'd sinned every single day of his life. He went into this wide-eyed. So Cain is a whole new example of high-handed, purposeful, deliberate rebellion. But he's not the pinnacle of it, because as you continue to read down through chapter 4, there's more and there's more. And eventually, one of his offspring named Lamech comes around, and he's different than Cain. Cain is embarrassed by his brother being accepted for trusting God, and so therefore he kills his brother out of, out of jealousy, out of anger. Lamech just has a guy punch him or slap him, and he kills him for it. It's a minor offense, and Lamech feels so self-justified that he strikes this man and kills him. God had told Cain, Cain, if somebody kills you, I will bring sevenfold retribution upon that man and his family. Lamech felt so justified in his homicide that he said, if somebody kills me, then may the revenge upon them be seventy-sevenfold. He felt incredibly justified in what he had done. So what's the, what's the fallout from Genesis chapter 3? That's the way to look at Genesis chapter 4. What's the fallout from the fall? Well, humanity devolves. Humanity begins to just implode upon itself. But that's not the last word. Wading through the darkness of that chapter, there, there is a piercing light that comes at the end. And that's what verses 25 and 26 declare to us. Moses says, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, almost in passing, Moses says this, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, or Yahweh. So worship is seemingly restored immediately by God. He comes to the prodigals in the garden, Adam and Eve. He robes them in righteousness, not by anything that they've earned, but just because of His kind grace. But then He does that for the next generation. We saw that with Abel. Abel seemed to be a person who understood imputed righteousness. That's a big theological term. It just means that God's righteousness is credited to us, not because of anything we've earned, but just because we've trusted. When something's imputed, it's credited to you. That happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. Seemingly, it happened to Abel. His heart depicted that. But Cain killed him. So Adam and Eve had to have been wondering, not only grieving for their son, but, but is there any hope for humanity? Because now the, the righteous will perish. But God didn't leave it that way, and he brought Seth. And Seth is this ray of light in the midst of the devolution of mankind. And Eve, 
the mother of all living, sees this. And she says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. She's responding to what the father said in Genesis chapter 3.15 when he promised that he would send an offspring. And her offspring, Eve's offspring, this offspring would bruise the head, would crush the tempter, and bring salvation once again to fallen humanity. And when Seth was handed by her husband to Eve after having given him birth, she looked at him and she prophesied and she said, here is an offspring of hope. And if Genesis chapter 4 is a chapter of painful and scary darkness, Genesis chapter 5 brings us a little bit more hope. So I want to read the whole chapter together now. You will be tempted as you read this chapter to say, this is one of those throwaway chapters. This is one of those chapters with lots of, this guy gave birth to this guy who gave birth to this guy, and they lived a long time. And it's tempting to read Genesis chapter 5 and say, this is one of those chaff chapters. Like, we've, we've removed all the, the grains of wheat. Now, all the rest of this stuff is junk. We look at chapters like this sometimes. This is not a junk chapter. None are. And I hope that we will see by the end that this one is full of life and hope. So let's read God's Word together. Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now notice, it's almost like Moses is saying there's a reboot. There's a restart. He doesn't mention the fall, and he doesn't mention Cain. It's not because he's ignoring it, but he's basically saying there's a new chance here. So keep that in mind as you read. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalal. Kenan lived after he had fathered Mahalal 140 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years. Had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, think about that. Your first baby in 162 years. He fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, 
Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And Noah was 500 years old. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Today we are going to continue this discussion of rebellion and rescue. I like the movie The Patriot. Some of you may have seen this. This is uh, one of Mel Gibson's movies, and whether you like Mel Gibson or not, it's a pretty good flick. So it's set back at the time of the Revolutionary War, and the movie opens up with this voiceover of the scene. You can't see his face. He's just speaking, and then later on he repeats basically the same uh, verbiage, and it goes like this. In his younger days, in his intemperate days, he had been a relatively brutal warrior. He had slaughtered some of his enemy, Mel Gibson's character. And after that, he became more temperate. He raised a family, he calmed down, and he understood the sins and brutality of his youth. But he says this in the movie, I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me, and the cost is more than I can bear. I wonder if Adam felt like that. I wonder if Adam, looking at the fruit of Cain's hands, not the crops, not the grains, not the vegetables, the fruits, but, but his brother lying dead. I wonder if Adam fell to his knees in despair. Not so much because he was angry at his son, though certainly that would have been true, but because he saw the fault as his own that he had allowed this sin to enter into the world and now bring destruction upon those that he loved. What point of contact does a chapter like this have with us? Well, as we already saw in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 4, we find here that God calls out worshipers. You could think of it this way. He preserves worship in the midst of lack of worship. He preserves worship in the midst of rebellion. That's what Seth really is all about. It's preserving worship. Adam and Eve had tasted the bitter fruit of their own sin. They had beheld the bitter fruit of their son's sin. And they wondered perhaps if it was all too broken to put back together. But then a little baby brought them hope once again. And through the promises of God, he preserves worship. And that's why we're here. Eight years later, we are here. We have been preserved because God has given us good hope. The echoes of the gospel resounded backward from the cross all the way here to Genesis chapter 4. Fallen people could feel them. And they speak in faith and confidence that their God would not leave them without hope. And through his promises of grace, worship was preserved. And that's why we're here. We are here because God's promises of grace. He's preserved worship among this band of worshipers we call North Point because of the gospel. That's it. 
So here in Genesis chapter 4, God gathered together a collection of saints, a band of worshipers, an assembly of his people, small though they were, and that's what we are. A band of worshipers, an assembly of God's saints that he has preserved by his grace. We are not here because we are clever. We are not here because we are righteous. We are not here because we are moral. We are not here because we have sought after God. We are here because of grace, period. And so in that sense, this chapter is perfect for us. Because as you look at this band of preserved worshipers, how did they make it? Why didn't they end up like Cain? It's all of grace. And I want you to bask in that today. So we're going to talk today about God's promises. And there's four things I want you to see that are a result of God always keeping his promises. First of all, we've already discussed this. God keeps his promises and therefore worship is restored. I want you to feel that today as you sit here. You're sitting here, if you are one of God's people, if you are a Christian, you are sitting here and your worship has been restored because God always keeps his promises. From Adam and Eve receiving grace when they didn't deserve it, to their son Abel, who was a follower of God, To their son Seth, who became a replacement, a righteous replacement. Worship was restored because God keeps his promises. We discussed this at length in Genesis chapter 3. But what did Adam and Eve deserve for their rebellion? They deserved to be wiped out. God could have looked at this and said, the experiment has failed. My image bearers will not do what I told them to do. I I made them to image forth what I'm like. And, And lest we miss this, I want to repeat this again. If God is great, we can also call that glorious. In other words, God's greatness and his glorious nature are kind of synonymous. So when we speak of God's glory, we're speaking of his greatness. When we speak of glorifying God, we're speaking about imaging forth his greatness. So God made us in his image to show how great he is. That was Adam and Eve's chief responsibility, to reflect upon the glory of God, sort of internally, to to meditate upon it, to understand it, and then to reflect it to everybody else around them watching. They were like solar panels taking in the energy of God's greatness and then radiating it outward. That was the point of creation. For image bearers to be like solar panels, taking in the greatness and the glory of God and then using that to reflect that greatness outward. But the fall marred all of that. And you might think God would look at this and say, well, we tried, it didn't work. But he promised that he would fix it. It would happen through offspring. So when God gave to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, it was the first sign that he was keeping his promises. That offspring would come and and bring victory over the tempter and bring life once again to his people. But it didn't work out with the first two offspring. You might look at this and say, well, God tried again. He gave them offspring, but they failed immediately. But God didn't leave it there. 
And this is one of the things we have to understand about God's grace is that it is relentless. Now, sometimes God's grace can be somewhat severe. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. If you are a child of God, a son or a daughter of God, he will pursue you. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, we've been studying this together, I know at least in our small group, that he disciplines his own children. But he does so because he loves them and he's trying to preserve righteousness and holiness in them. But God's grace is relentless. He always comes after us. This is why if you are a son or a daughter of God, you can attest to this. He has not let you go. There have been periods of time where you have wandered. There have been plenty more when you've been tempted to wander. And yet, relentlessly, he keeps coming after you because he loves you. And because when your worship is restored and amplified, he gets glory. And that's why he made the world in the first place. So the preservation of humanity serves to accomplish two primary things. It restores joy to the broken. It brings rest to the weary. But secondly, it brings glory to the Creator and the Restorer. And so God always keeps His promises. In this case, He promises to give them seed. And one day, one of those seeds will bring victory. It wasn't Cain. It wasn't Abel. Maybe it would be Seth. Now, we know that it was not Seth, but through Seth, a righteous line came about which stands in juxtaposition to Cain's line. Cain's line, evil. Seth's line, as we just read in chapter 5, marked by righteousness. God restores worship, once again, bringing joy to the broken, rest to the weary, and equally, bringing praise to the one who's making all things new. And this is the essence of your rescue. This is the essence of your salvation. That God has taken that which is lost, sought it out, and brought it back to himself. And of course you know, if you've been following along with us through the book of Genesis, that really the answer to the promise of Genesis 3.15 of the offspring the eventual offspring which would crush the tempter and bring victory to God's people, he wouldn't come for thousands of years, but he would come. It would be the second person of the Trinity robed in flesh, and we call his name Jesus. And through his perfect obedience and through his atoning death where he became our substitute and through his resurrection from the dead, he conquered sin and death And if we will but trust him, his righteousness can be imputed, credited to us, and our worship might be restored. God came unto his own. And if you're judging by Cain's line, his own did not receive him. Jesus came to his own, John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel, and his own did not receive him. The fact that you sit here today as a child of God is not because you were intuitively religious. The fact that you sit here today as a son or daughter of the Creator is because God sought you in mercy. And I want you to feel that today. 
And the fact that we are together today as a band of preserved worshipers is all of grace. And we are grateful. So I love this brief and passing statement that Moses makes. That as God brings hope once again in the midst of the darkness, people call on his name. They worship. One of my favorite Christian artists uh, died a number of years ago. His name is Rich Mullins. Uh, He died because he fell out of his Jeep, which is, you know, not the worst way to go. Um, But Rich was an amazing guy. Rich lived his life to the fullest and um, said some very important things in his songs, which is sort of counter to the way most of our Christian music is these days. But here's something Rich said one time. This probably was written while he lived in a teepee, literally, like for a while he lived in a teepee in Kansas, uh, which led to some incredible lyrics. But here's what he said one time as he was looking at the planes the P-L-I-N-S's, not the ones that fly overhead, the, the American planes that are vast if you've never driven through them. Here's what he thought one time as he was looking at them. From the place where morning gathers, you can look sometimes forever till you see what time may never know, what time may never know. How the Lord takes by its corners this whole world and shakes us forward and shakes us free to run wild with the hope To run wild with the hope. The hope that this thirst will not last long. That it will soon drown in a song not sung in vain. And I feel thunder in the sky. I see the sky about to rain. And I hear the prairies calling out your name. He could feel creation groaning and anticipating the finality of salvation. And as we saw already in Genesis 1 through 4, humanity is connected to this creation. As Paul says in Romans 8, creation groans awaiting the finality of its redemption. And it's looking at us because when we are redeemed, creation will be redeemed. And like creation cries out praise to God and expectation, so do we. So Eve, the mother of all living cries out to God, you are keeping your promises. God's people begin to call upon his name, the covenant keeper, the Lord. They praise him, and we do the same today. So because God always keeps his promises, worship is restored. Secondly, this is the bulk of the chapter of chapter 5. Because God always keeps his promises, not only is worship restored, but hope is rekindled. That's really what the first 20 verses are about. God keeps bringing new seed. New life keeps coming. You see a pattern here. Someone is born and someone dies. There's sort of this tension between cursing and blessing. The death reminds us that there is, there's a consequence to the fall. But every time there's a death, there's a reminder that there's a new life. One of the interesting things, and we won't take time to do this today in any depth, but if you take time to study Genesis chapter 4 juxtaposed to Genesis chapter 5, you'll see some of the same names. Now, maybe because their language wasn't quite as developed as we, of course, would have it today, but but there's similar names, I think, for another purpose. Cain's line fell apart, disintegrated, got worse. Seth's line, there was a basic trend of righteousness. We'll talk about Lamech in just a little bit, but if the Lamech of Genesis chapter 4 that came through Cain's line was so evil and prideful, the Lamech that we find in Genesis chapter 5 is full of faith. He names his son Noah. In other words, he names him rest. That's what Noah means. 
The first Lamech was, was a murderer. The first Lamech was a prideful person who hated God. The Lamech that came through, through Seth's line, that shows us that hope is rekindled. It's interesting to think about Adam's life before the fall and after the fall. We know that he was an older man, of course, by our standards, by the time that Seth came around, he was 130, but he lived in 930. So we don't know how long it was exactly between Cain's birth and Seth's birth, or perhaps even more importantly, between the fall and Seth's birth. But we know that Adam lived a whole lot longer after the fall than he lived before the fall. We've talked about this at some measure of depth, but it's interesting to consider, was Adam so fallen and broken that it was hard for him to remember what it was like before the fall? Or did the sweetness of his relationship with God and with his wife before the fall, did, did, did he still remember On the one hand, that would encourage him that perhaps restoration could come for him and his offspring. But there also had to have been a sense of bitterness in his spirit because he remembered what he had given up. Nonetheless, even though this second portion of Adam's life, which was much longer in duration than the first portion of his life, yet it was not without hope. And as Seth was born, and Seth's son, and children and their children and so forth and so on were born, Adam had to have hoped beyond hope that there was restoration to come, that the way he used to feel, the way things used to be, that it could be like that again. So if you think about it, every time Adam had a kid, every time he had a grandkid or a great-grandkid, and if you live 930 years, I assume that your family reunions are pretty large. So when you get together and you're eating lamb or whatever it was they ate, you had to think that old Grandpa Adam was sitting at the head of the table thinking, if only you knew what it used to be like. I mean, it would be the ultimate back in the old days stories, right? But he had to have also had a small glimmer of hope. And if you had looked at him at the end of the family reunion table, maybe there was a gleam in his eye which, which showed deep into his soul the hope, the confident expectation that maybe one of these seeds gathered around Grandpa Adam would be the one that God would use to bring his promises to pass. So for Adam, with every new seed, hope is rekindled. And God kept keeping his promises. So as we look today at our lives, hope gets rekindled every time we sin, repent, and are forgiven. Hope is rekindled every time a lost person trusts Christ. Hope is rekindled when we listen to the preaching of God's word and we're reminded once again that God is gracious and there is a better way. Hope is rekindled when sin is deposed and righteousness sits in its place. Hope is rekindled when Christ is understood to be the one who brings joy 
and anything else pales in comparison. Each degree of change for you and for me and for us corporately is one more sign that God is waking this world back up and one day he will make it all new. So a church plant like this one is like that. Every new family that comes, that learns to treasure Christ, every new friend that shows mercy and kindness to another, every sacrifice that is made, every life that is transformed as we gather together as preserved worshipers because of God's promises, it it brings us hope. So I'm grateful for each of you because you bring me hope. And I want you to understand that you play a vital role not only in extending hope to one another, but to this community. Before we move on to the third point, I want to just park there for a moment. Do you realize, do you realize that almost everyone around us, they don't believe? And even though there's quite a number of churches here in our community and just assuming that let's say the bulk of them are evangelical and have some measure of understanding of the gospel, still our numbers are small in comparison. As we look at our sphere of influence here in Lewis Center and Powell and Delaware and Westerville and all the surrounding areas, we're a small microcosm of a much bigger world. Most people are yet in darkness. They are yet in Genesis chapter 4. But as God has rekindled hope for you and for me, we now have the responsibility and the privilege to take this message of hope to all those around us who see it, expending our resources of time and money and talent that hope might be rekindled in the hearts of those who have not yet believed. And so that's why we're here as well, not only to be thankful for our own hope that has been rekindled, but to take that to others who desperately need it. Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, we are reminded of how God indeed keeps his promises. So the big question I want you to ask yourself as we read a few verses here, we will not read this whole section, only the verses at the end, is in what way did this birth of this seed, God keeping his promises of bringing Seth and all of his offspring, in what way did God use this to keep his promises to bring redemption? Well, at the end of chapter 3, Jesus has been born by this point and has begun his public ministry. What you'll find out at the end of chapter 3 is a reverse genealogy, a reverse family tree, if you will. Beginning, first of all, with Jesus, the son of Joseph, his earthly father, and ending all the way back with the first man. Notice down in verse 36, this person, Shelah, was the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. Son of God. See what God did? In some way, Eve's prophecy was true. And even though Seth would not be the one who ultimately would be the conqueror, neither would Enos or 
Canaan or Mahalalel or Jared or Methuselah or Noah, who means rest, or even Shem, his son. It would eventually be Jesus. But because God gave his promise to bring about this man named Seth, Jesus eventually would come. Now that he's come, and now that he has rescued you and rescued me, we are to rest in his grace, and we're to tell about it. That's why we take time in our teaching here to help you rest and to help equip you that you might be one who proclaims the good news. So hope has been rekindled. Take joy in that. Hope has been rekindled. Take forward your responsibility to proclaim it. So because God always keeps his promises, worship is restored. Hope is rekindled. And thirdly, in verses 21 to 24, back in Genesis chapter 5, righteousness is preserved. There's an interesting story that we find here in the midst of this family tree. That there's a guy named Enoch. He lives 365 years, which seems a lot shorter than the rest. And maybe out of mercy and not making him endure in his fallenness as long as his brothers and fathers and offspring, God just takes him. Everybody else here, it speaks of their death, except for Enoch. It's interesting. Why is that? What's clear here that Enoch walked with God. This doesn't just mean that he walked before God's presence. It means that he walked in relationship with God. The writer of Hebrews comments on this in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So Abel's righteous faith speaks to us today. But not only Abel, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. What was Enoch's life characterized by? Pleasing God. Drawing after him. Believing in him. If we could sum this up in one word, he trusted Those who trust God care about what God cares about. Those who trust God depend upon him to give them grace to please him. Is obedience essential for the life of a believer? Yes. But by what means does it come about? It comes about through confident trust. And this characterized Enoch. And therefore... As we look at Enoch, we find God preserving righteousness. Now, in a sense, he preserved the righteous one. After 365 years, he preserved him just by taking him up to be with him. He didn't have to physically die. But Enoch became an example for his offspring. And therefore, not only was the righteous one preserved organically, but his righteous character was preserved in his line. And you see this because of the one that comes not long after Enoch. So God always keeps his promises and righteousness is preserved. But because righteousness is preserved, rest is anticipated. So Enoch has a guy named Methuselah. 
guy who lived the longest of all the people that we know. Methuselah has a guy named Lamech, and Lamech has a guy named Noah. So the righteous one ends up having a son, and then a grandson, and a great-grandson, and that great-grandson would be named Rest. And Lamech, the grandson of the righteous one, calls him this, because even though this line is somewhat characterized by righteousness, yet this righteous line feels the, the sting of their own sin. Every time they watch someone die, they realize that the curse was still upon them. Every time they watched their wife struggle through childbirth, they remembered the curse was on them. Every time they watched their wife struggle with them in a relationship, or kids struggle to obey, or brothers fall out from one another because of broken relationships, every time they lusted, every time they struggled with their pride or their greed, they were reminded that yet the curse was upon them. And much like his great, 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 great grandmother or how many greats it was, this genealogy probably has gaps in it. Lamech prophesies much like Eve had that his offspring might be the one, might be the one who brings rest. And of course, because of what we'll study together in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, in a sense, Lamech was a very good prophet. This Lamech is much better, as we've already said, than the Lamech from Cain's line. And I think the numbers here are probably significant. Remember, the Lamech from Cain said, If somebody hurts me, may my revenge upon him be seventy-sevenfold. But notice how long Lamech lived. This is probably purposeful by Moses. He lived 777 years. Lamech calls out 77 years of cursing. But the Lamech that came from Cessline got 777 years of blessing. It was like ultimate perfection. Not because he himself was perfect, not because he had inherent righteousness. But like his grandfather Enoch, he walked with God and God blessed him. I love this name, Noah. As I go on in my years, I'm not that old, but I'm getting close to 40. I realize more and more how desperately I need God. And if there's anything I want our church to be characterized by, maybe over the next eight years, is that we're a desperate people. It's okay to be desperate. If you're not desperate, there's something wrong. I want you to be desperate that your marriage will not last if Jesus is not in the center of it. I want you to be desperate that you cannot possibly raise godly kids unless Jesus is in the center of it. I want you to worry that this church will fall apart if Jesus is not at the center of it. I want you to be desperate. I think Lamech was desperate, and I think that's why he called his kid Rest or Noah. This concept of rest is is a critical thought throughout the Scriptures. We see this already in Genesis chapter 2. Moses says to us in regard to God's creative work, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Then Moses says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy or set it apart, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. 
Not because he was tired, not because he was worn out or fatigued, but to set a pattern for us that after all his creative work, rest can be anticipated. That is why in the Mosaic Law in Exodus chapter 20, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, he says to Moses, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath or a rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, the rest day, and made it holy. And that is why Jesus, in arguing with the self-righteous religious leaders of his day, who were arguing that you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath, he says to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, Jesus, is Lord even of the Sabbath, of the rest. Think about what Jesus is saying there. Rest was made for man, and I, the Son of Man, I'm the Lord of rest. And that's why in Matthew chapter 11, he can say to his followers, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we close today, let's turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 4. Contextually, in the book of Hebrews, the writer is very concerned that these Christians, these who have claimed the name of Christ, may fall by the wayside We can look at the book of Hebrews as a call to sojourn well, to journey well. And in Hebrews chapter 4, we find somewhat of the apex of that argument. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, the writer says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest, or rest rest, for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And I want you to think about what we've talked about today in Genesis 5 as you hear these two verses. For the word of God, including Genesis 5, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If you're characterized by the lifestyle of those from Cain's line in Genesis chapter 4, you will not find rest. But if your life is characterized by those in Seth's line, you will find rest, as Noah's name depicts. And therefore, the writer of Hebrews can say in verses 14 through 16 of Hebrews 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Adam and Eve felt this when Seth was born. Lamech felt this when Noah was born. God kept his promises preserving his worshipers, therefore bringing hope to the world. We today are a preserved assembly of worshipers because of God's promises. 
and I call you to faithful endurance as you look to the one who ultimately brings rest, Jesus, the prophesied seed who has now come and is making all things new. One of my favorite songs is by Andrew Peterson. It's called Don't You Want to Thank Someone. Here's some selected lyrics. Can't you feel it in your bones? Something isn't right here. Something that you've always known, but you don't know why. Because every time the sun goes down, we face another night here, waiting for the world to spin around just to survive. But someday the world will be new again. And the children of the king, they'll be ancient in their youth again. Maybe it's a better thing, a better thing. To be more than merely innocent, but to be broken, then redeemed by love. Maybe this whole world is bent, but it's waking up, and I'm waking up. And that's who we are together today. So, just to recap. Because God always keeps his promises, worship is restored. Hope is rekindled. Righteousness is preserved. And rest is anticipated. So, we are his. All we have, all we are, is because of his grace. We've been brought together to sojourn. To sojourn together as worshipers. Resting in him now and waiting for the final rest to come. We aren't who we want to be, but we're not who we were. For the sake of his glory, the encouragement of the fellow sojourner sitting next to you, and for the hope of those who have not yet heard, we will worship, we will pray, and we will proclaim. Our God always keeps his promises Everything good that we have or have to offer is from him. And so for the sake of the name, for the sake of the glory of our creator, and for the joy of we his people, may he give us another year that we will praise him, worship him, and sojourn together with him. Let's stand together. And as the worship team comes, let's pray.